In, in my utopian society, work and play would become the same thing, right? Or we would have removed the word work from the dictionary. Poverty is too expensive. We can't afford it. I love your ambition, but good God, we're far behind here. We got to be talking about taxes. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. One American capitalist take on how we got into this mess and how we can get out. Hey, I'm Zach Silk, and I'm the president of Civic Ventures. I'm here with Nick. Hey. So we are having a conversation today with uh, Rutger Bregman. He is a Dutch historian and author who's published four books, but his most important one is Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build the Ideal World. And this was at the foreground of sparking what has become a movement around universal basic income. Which is simply the proposition that the government should pay every citizen some stipend. How much, uh, uh, that's that's open, obviously context dependent, but the idea is that you would get a stipend from the government, which would essentially cover a lot of your, um, you know, your basics. And by so doing, give people a lot more freedom and um, agency in their economic lives. Yeah, <laughs> and then interestingly, um, the Guardian called him the Dutch wonderkin of new ideas, <laughs> which I'll have to say, um, having watched what he's done at Davos and his TED Talk, I think it's a pretty good title. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and uh, I think uh, that uh, Rutger sort of burst on the scene sort of in a more popular way when he was part of a televised discussion or debate at Davos where he, where, you know, he had the courage to call the question on taxes during the conversation about inequality. To be honest. I mean, 1,500 private yets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak he about was water. so articulate and so on the money on this and, and, you know, threw shade on this ridiculous sort of modern neoliberal idea that we'll just do a little bit of charity in the background and it'll all go away, um, all these problems. And so he's super cool, super cool and articulate uh, response to that. Yeah. And one of the cool parts about his book and his writing as a whole is he's trying to really reimagine work and what it means to work. Yeah. And uh, everything I've read by him, it, it's among the more intriguing things that I'm really interested uh, in engaging with him on. Uh, and then I have to confess, I, I lived in Holland for a while, and uh, <laughs> so I have a little soft spot for the Dutch. Uh, so I can't wait to I can't wait to talk to him. Yeah, it should be really interesting. Hi, Nick. Uh, hey, well, thank you so much for taking uh, some time to chat with us about economics and stuff like that. Um, yeah. and so, uh, say hi to my colleague, Zach Silk. Hi there, Zach. Hey, how are you? Yeah. Hey, I, um, I lived in Amsterdam for a couple of years. Really? So, yeah. So you're my new Dutch crush. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I studied at the, uh, the university of Amsterdam. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. 
And when was that? And a long uh, time ago? A long time ago. Uh, yeah, 1999 and 2000. So I was there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for some time. Those were ago. the golden years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, so uh, it's great to have you with us, and you became our hero. Uh, we, we'd never heard of you before. Uh, uh, you shook up the Davos crowd. And, you know, it was great to see you making that argument about taxes and how insufficient philanthropy is on that stage. It's stuff that we've been arguing for a long time. But tell us a little bit about how you got on that stage. Who made this terrible mistake of inviting you? <laughs> how did that happen? Like, what were they thinking? Okay, so what happened is that I was invited to Davos to talk about my book, Utopia for Realists, which is a book about all sorts of utopian crazy ideas, right? So the central argument of the book is that every milestone of civilization, uh, you know, the end of slavery or democracy or equal rights for men and women, um, these these have all been utopian fantasies once. Um, and I, I thought that the big problem of, to, of today is not so much that we don't have it good, but that we don't know where to go next. So in the book, I, I have a couple of, yeah, utopian, crazy, and reasonable ideas. And one of those ideas uh, is universal basic income. Now, when I wrote this book into uh, 2014, that was a completely forgotten idea. You know, there were very few people around the globe uh, talking and writing about it. Uh, but in the years uh, after my book was published, it became more and more popular, especially in, in Silicon Valley. Lots of people, you know, tech CEOs became interested in the idea because they were, you know, worrying about the threat of automation. And, and they were thinking about, you know, the robots are going to come and going to take all these jobs. So I guess they were feeling a little bit guilty about that and got interested in basic income. Now, at that point, if you wanted anyone to, to give a talk on basic income and you would start Googling, you would find that there would be like 10 people in the world writing about it. And nine of them would be old and gray. And one of them was me. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that that's what, what helped me. I was just uh, lucky, you know, so I, I had the opportunity to do a TED talk, etc. You know, all that all that standard stuff about it. And then they invited me to Davos. Uh, with the idea, I guess, that I was just some uh, some harmless thought leader with a couple of nice ideas. Um, so um, that that also really was my intention in Davos to uh, to talk about my book and about basic income and about new re new research into poverty. Uh, but as I as I was there, and as as you know, I, I got I got more and more uncomfortable. So uh, and at some don't point, mean to interrupt, Rucker, but you didn't have a grand yeah, plan sure. to talk about taxes when you went in. Is that no, no, not at all. No, not at all. Uh -huh. It was only the day before the, the panel. So uh, I got there on Monday and on Friday was the last day of the conference. And I knew I was going to participate in a panel that was going to be televised. And, you know, pretty great opportunity to <laughs> promote your book, right? Uh, so that was that was my original plan. But as I said, you know, I became more and more uncomfortable. So on Thursday, I was I was talking to my wife and I was you know, explaining how bizarre this whole world was yes. where everyone was talking about feminism and participation and equality and all those wonderful things. But no one was talking about taxes, you know, <laughs> about actually paying your fair share. Um, 
So uh, yeah, she said, "Why don't you, why don't you just uh, hijack the conference and and, and give a speech <laughs> about this?" So that's when I went to my hotel room and uh, and I just uh, yeah I wrote this short speech and I didn't expect much of it. And uh, on that Friday, the you know the first opportunity I got, I think the moderator asked me something about my book, something about poverty. I for, I forgot what it was exactly, and I just decided to ignore the question and go ahead. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you know, the cool part for us was that you did call the question the, and the most important question in a context that really needs to hear that. And um, our work, of course, is to disrupt the neoliberal orthodoxy. And so we're super excited to connect with people who are even more ambitious than we are, <laughs> even if we don't altogether agree with some of the ideas that we hear from folks. We definitely uh, know that the orthodoxy is wrong, right? Like, so we're 100% yeah. yeah. certain about that. <laughs> so what, what replaces it is less clear, but we know that we have to work hard, I think, you know, to find a better set of ideas. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I'm, I'm just so excited about what's been happening in the past couple of years. Um, when I, when I published this book, it, you know, it didn't feel mainstream at all, but nowadays, you know, with politicians like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yes. and uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, the Scandinavian girl talking about climate change. It feels, I mean, it's it's such a different uh, different zeitgeist already. And yeah. things are happening so quickly right now. Absolutely. Very exciting. Absolutely. And, you know, like we were reflecting, we had uh, our team at Civic Ventures had a offsite yesterday and talked about the environment change. And one of the things that we highlighted was that at least of the people who are running for president as Democrats, and there are a lot of them there, the policy agendas that they represent are so much more ambitious than they yeah, were yeah. four years yeah. ago. I mean, just just almost it's you almost can't even see a connection to, you know, what Hillary Clinton's agenda, you know, economic agenda was and the agendas of the people who are who are yeah. running today and the conversation really has shift and I think shifted and I think that people really do recognize that we have to take some bold steps if we're to he if we are to improve society generally and heal the problems of the past. Yeah, and this is what real politics looks like, right? It's what real progress looks like. It's about crazy ideas that start on the fringes and then start moving towards the center. And suddenly things that were completely unreasonable a couple of years ago are now have become common sense you know when it with regard to climate change i was reading some of my own stuff from five or six years ago and i was actually quite shocked how <laughs> you know how I, timid I guess I, yeah. yeah yeah very timid i guess I, I wanted to be nuanced or something like that but i was like <laughs> yeah it's a big problem but you know I'm, I'll probably solve it and <laughs> something like that i don't know I, I i could never write something like that again huh so interesting. Yeah, so Rucker, part of the reason we wanted to talk, of course, is you wrote this book. And one of the things that we really appreciate are people that are willing to do big, bold ide ideation. Uh, mm -hmm. could, could you unpack uh, the ideas that you have in the book just briefly for us? And then we're going to tick them off one by one. Sure. Well, as I, as I said, the, the, the first and most important idea in the book is the idea of a universal basic income, which has become much more popular in the past couple of years. It's even a little bit mainstream right now. I, I have this feeling that I, uh, 
you know it's it's even not a very utopian idea anymore it's almost mm -hmm. like oh that's just this is another guy arguing for basic income that's boring we've heard that yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the response i get uh, sometimes these days but i mean the general idea is obviously very simple right you give everyone a monthly grant which is enough to pay for your basic needs uh, food shelter uh, clothing uh, a bit of education and it's completely unconditional so you get it no matter what. You don't have to apply for it. No one's going to tell you what you have to do with uh, with it, what you have to do for it. Uh, it's just your birthright, basically. The only thing that you need is that you're alive, right? That you you have a beating heart. That's enough. So it's a very, very simple idea with a very old history um, and some, some fascinating implications. I, I'm curious because, well, well, we'll just be honest about it. We've been a little UBI skeptical here at our mm -hmm. shop. But not for the reasons that many others would be. I think one of our worries is that in a neoliberal order, uh, the, I don't know, our corporate overlords would find a way to turn this into a subsidy. Um, mm -hmm. We have something in here in the United States called the EITC, which is an yeah. earned income tax credit. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So it approximates uh, a UBI in some ways. But we have such low labor standards in most of the country that you basically end up subsidizing Walmart. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. It's an excuse. Yeah. It's an excuse for Walmart not to pay its workers enough to get by without EATC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And let me just, let me just expand on that because I think this is a super interesting tension. You know, things like the EITC are every tech CEO and wall street Titans favorite remedy for uh, poverty and inequality. But you know, speaking as tech CEO or mm -hmm. and a CEO generally, what I can tell you is, and as a and as a, a owner of a a lot of stock and having a lot of wealth tied up in the stock market, the countervailing argument, of course, is that this is just a way for the titans of industry to get the public to subsidize their profits and their and the wages that they pay mm -hmm. workers i mean you know obviously it, it, the higher the eitc the less uh or or uh, basic income or whatever form it of it, it takes uh the less pressure there is on companies to pay their workers adequately in the absence of those things and the higher profits can be which drives the multiple of earnings that generates share price increases uh, mm -hmm. Which and so, from my own point of view, um, I, I haven't been a fan of EITC because I think it distracts from the more immediate work of requiring companies to pay people enough to get by without government assistance, and the insistence that if you cannot figure out how to do that, you should go find another line of work. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that you know, like that that this should be the synchronon essentially of running a business mm -hmm. is that you know like figure out how to pay your workers enough to lead dignified lives mm -hmm. and if your products and services can't support that well then we should you should you know like go be a ballet dancer or a firefighter those are noble yeah. professions yeah. too you know like but some the world will not run out of hamburgers we can be quite sure of that so mm -hmm. anyway oh, there's so, there's so much to say about this yeah um, may, maybe in the first place is and maybe this is also my European perspective. Yes. For me, right. a basic income is absolutely a supplement to the, to the other great achievements yeah, yeah, of yeah. the welfare state, right? Yeah. So, so as someone from the Netherlands, universal healthcare is absolutely non-negotiable, right? Yeah, exactly. We don't have <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, uh, internationally the exception. Yes. Um, yeah. But 
uh, universal healthcare is incredibly popular in all those countries that have it. It's it's much more efficient than this this private thing that you you have in the U.S. Yeah, uh, where life expectancy is actually going down. Right. So we have so the world's our healthcare system is largely the world's uh, the world's largest price fixing scheme. <laughs> is what yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And 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 the vast majority of Americans including Republicans and including Fox News uh, viewers is you know is in favor of Medicare for all. That's that's also one of the the really interesting that yeah. thing that more and more people have come to realize is that actually all these policies like higher taxes on the rich, yeah. Medicare, um paid maternity leave, raising uh, wages. All, yeah, which are, you know, absolutely common sense uh, yeah. in Europe are now becoming more and more common sense in the US as well. Actually, some would argue that they've been common sense among the publics, you know, since the early 90s. You yes. know, if you look at the polls from Gallup, people have been in favor of this all the time. It's just that right wing politicians have been really good at distracting us and Democrats have been, <laughs> well, have been equally complicit all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Equally yeah, complicit, exactly. yeah. if you're being yeah. honest. Yeah. 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 So that's important. Basic income is really a supplement. There are versions of a basic income out there which would only make things worse, right? So many right-wing libertarians would love, you know, to see a small basic income that, you know, won't help you much and indeed will basically be a subsidy for, for employers. But what if we would have a basic income that would be actually enough to live on in addition to guaranteed healthcare and all the, all the other stuff and, and quality public education? Then it would act as a universal strike fund, right? And and workers would have much more bargaining power because they can always say, you know what? I can always fall back on my basic income. I can always go on strike. Now, what would happen, I think, in, in such a basic income society is that the people who do the most socially valuable jobs, like, like the teachers and the garbage collectors and the nurses, who now have, you know, relatively low wages, they get more bargaining power, they start earning more. So this is basically one of the, the most interesting um, yes. aspects of, of, a, of a proper basic income is that it could help us move towards a society where the people who, you know, earn the most also do the most valuable jobs yeah. and vice versa, uh, right? Because if, if, say, the telemarketeers go on strike or the bankers go on strike or, or the, you know, the corporate tax lawyers or whatever, we don't really care if they go on strike. It's like, yeah, yeah. sure, go on strike. We don't care. I, I've got one story in my book about bankers going on strike. Yeah. This, this happened in Ireland in the 1970s. The strike lasted for six months and nothing happened. And then the bankers came <laughs> back. So I always yeah. love that way of thinking about it. And this is this is the, 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 the most important thing that I'm trying to do in my book is, is sort of to redefine what work even is. Yes. And to ask the question, who are the real wealth wealth creators? And I think that a proper basic income could be truly transformative here. But if you have uh, something like an earned income tax credit, which is only for people who have a job, right? It's not for people who don't have a job. Then sure, that's going to be just a subsidy for uh, for employers. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, again, you know, you, the Dutch perspective and the American perspective are so different because we start from uh, at such an entirely different base. And I guess you know, from our perspective, just in the context of the of the real politic of actually creating change at scale right now in our country, we can make so much progress so fast by, for, for instance, raising the minimum wage of $15 an hour, reestablishing the overtime threshold, pushing through some version of 
Medicare for all, whatever it would be, some approximation of the healthcare system that you and every, and people in every other developed country have. Yeah, yeah. you know, and then <laughs> you know, <laughs> then maybe in the glorious future we could start talking about supplementing people's income in some way. Have yeah. you considered? Um, so there is a policy proposal that seems more realistic in the United States, uh, certainly. Uh, less expensive, which is the idea of a universal basic job, that the government would commit itself to employing people and giving them a job um, if they become unemployed. And and the reason, one of the reasons I think this is a powerful idea, first of all, it costs a lot less, but it also gives people the, uh, um, uh, more bargaining power, right? Mm-hmm. Is it you, you have given people an alternative, which is good to being treated poorly, or being exploited uh, in the private market. Have you mm-hmm. have you given have you done an analysis of that idea? Yeah, I, I've read quite a bit about it. Yeah, um, I'm not unsympathetic to the idea, uh, but there is one downside, though, right? Yeah. Uh, because the government's going to decide what's going to be the useful work, mm-hmm. and historically, uh, the government has not always been good at that. You know, sometimes neither is the private sector. <laughs> neither is the private sector. I just would like to yeah. point out. <laughs> okay. That's very true. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I believe I believe in people themselves. Yeah. So that's I think that's the big difference here. If you would give people universal basic income, they can decide for themselves what kind of work they want to do, whether they want to care for their kids or for the elderly or start a new company or move to a different city. Uh, in that sense, you know, I do believe in uh, individual enterprise and individual freedom. But you got got to give people the means first yeah. to make those right. uh, decisions. And the other thing is. I know there are a lot of people out there who believe that a basic income would be, you know, too expensive that we can't afford it. Yeah. It's it's important to really delve into the numbers here. In the first place, you got to distinguish between the net costs and the gross costs, right? So usually what happens in the media is that people say, "Oh, a basic income is would be so expensive you give 200 or 250 million people a basic income and that will be like this many trillions of dollars who can never afford this." Yeah. But those are the gross costs, right? Because many people will get a basic income and pay the same amount in additional taxes to fund the basic income. And, you know, nothing will change for them, basically. So you got to look at how much redistribution will happen. And that's a much smaller sum. And that's obviously the real cost of a basic income. Then the other thing is what you got to look at is the return, right? The return on the investment. Mm -hmm. And what I try to show in my book is that there is, it's a, it's a pretty terrific investment, basically. Yeah. Um, eradicating poverty, you know, yeah. you get lower crime rates, kids do uh, better in school, uh, health uh, improves in many ways. Um, so this is this is the kind of thinking that I try to apply a lot in the book. Also, when it comes to homelessness, by the way. Yeah. It's just poverty is too expensive. Yeah. We can't no. afford it. Right. Homelessness is too expensive. We can't afford it. Yeah. And it's much cheaper to to solve these problems directly with the most simplest solution. Right. If people are homeless, give them a home. If yeah. people are poor, give them money. It's quite simple. So um, that, that's why in the end, I'm, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to to the idea of just trusting people themselves and giving them the means. But, you know, if I would be a politician, I, I mean, a job guarantee would be much better than no job guarantee at all, yeah, right? So right. I'm, I'm not sort of totally against it. Or anything. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, you uh, and Rucker and other ideas that were in the book, uh, they include this 15-hour work week uh, principle. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And what does that, what do you think that looks like in, in practically? Yeah, sure. Well, you guys have probably heard of this this famous essay that's been mentioned so in these days, you know, by by John Maynard Keynes. 
he wrote in the in the 1930s at the beginning of it. Um, it's called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And Keynes made two predictions, basically. The first prediction was uh, we'll get a lot richer. And the second prediction was that we'll, we would use all that wealth to work a little bit less every year and every decade. Yeah. Um, first prediction turned out to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So he we actually, are much, much richer than we yeah. were in the 1930s. He probably slightly uh, underestimated that. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He, he said we would be about four to eight times as rich. I think we're already five or six times as rich. Yeah. But the th the second prediction was obviously, you know, it didn't turn out to be true. Actually, especially in the U.S. Yes. People since the 1980s have been working more and more and more. Yeah. I was recently reading this piece on workism, which uh, seems to be a real thing about people being totally obsessed with their work and defining their whole identity around yes. their work, work, work. We definitely um, resemble that remark. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's fascinating. Just if you. If you read that, you know, Keynes essay, but also the work of so many others, like there's there's an essay written by Isaac Asimov, you know, the great science fiction sure. writer um, in the 1960s, I believe this was. And he was asked by The New York Times to to make some predictions for the future. And and the, the thing he was most certain about was that boredom was going to be the great challenge of the future hmm. uh, and that the psychiatry would be the. The biggest profession because all these psychiatrists would have to treat all those people who would be suffering from boredom right and and it's pretty much the other way around we have a huge number of, of psychiatrists but they're mostly treating people who are suffering from burnouts and, and work-related depressions and that and that kind of thing um so something went terribly terribly wrong there and in the book i i sort of asked the question how did this happen and we can we turn it around yeah again if if you're american you know, we start from such an insanely low base. And uh, one of the so in addition to the $15 minimum wage, which is one of the sort of our signature efforts, the other thing that we're working on super hard uh, mm -hmm. is the overtime threshold in the United States, uh, mm -hmm. which is the th which is the wage threshold below which your employers are required to pay you time and a half for your efforts. Yeah, the foundational mm -hmm. the the foundational labor laws in the United States basically created a minimum wage, and this idea was maximum hours. Yeah. And this is sort of like a good modern <laughs> principle about how to govern the labor market. <laughs> but over time, the top, the overtime top, has been basically blown off so yeah. that people can work extraordinary hours for very little pay. Yeah. So there's effectively no maximum hour threshold or incentive for employers to not work uh, employees sometimes as much as 60, 70 hours a week with Absolutely. no additional compensation. Right. And and mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why the wealthy have captured such a high proportion of the benefits of economic growth and productivity increases over the last 40 years. Because today, the overtime threshold only includes 7% of salaried workers. So mm -hmm. if you earn Get this, if you earn more than $23,600 a year in the United States of America and your boss pitches you a fake title like um, uh, assistant manager, they can make you work <laughs> 70 hours a week and only pay you for the first 40. Mind you, you're probably earning 8 or 9 or $10 an hour to begin <laughs> with, right? So 
this is one of the great challenges, and we're in the process of trying to um, change that in our state, actually, will be among the first and most ambitious standards in the nation. Uh, but mm-hmm. I would be pleased if we could get people to get paid for more than 40 hours a week. Uh, much, <laughs> I love your ambition, but good God, we're far behind here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the funny thing is that, obviously, I, I first wrote this book in Dutch, now, Holland has the shortest working week in the world, yeah, uh, yeah. according to OECD stats. So some people ask me, like, why did, why did, why do you make this point? I mean, <laughs> uh, but still, <laughs> I, I wrote it first in Dutch because what we, what, what I was seeing and many others were seeing as well is that also in the Netherlands we're working harder and harder, and there was this rise in in burnouts, etc. But then, for example, the book was translated to Japanese, and I was like, Holland is paradise compared to Japan. (laughs) I've I've never seen so many bullshit jobs in in my life, you know, so many people doing jobs that absolutely don't need to be doing. Um, You know, you you just walk around in the streets in Tokyo and there's roadworks going on and there are six or seven people standing next to it and just waving like, go past it, go to the right, go to the left. Like, yeah, duh, obviously there's no other way to go. Um, So yeah, this is that that was something I realized, you know, doing this international book tour that things can get way worse. Yeah. Uh, it's also something actually some of my colleagues have realized. I'm, I'm part of a journalism platform called The Correspondent that has just expanded into English. And um, uh, some of my friends moved to, to New York for, for more than a year, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to hire people and to make people enthusiastic about the, uh, the, about the project. And uh, so they could sort of experience what, American life is compared to living in Amsterdam. It's really interesting. It's some some things that you realize. So, for example, yeah, uh, salaries and wages are are in general much higher in in um, in New York than in Amsterdam. But then you have to pay so much money for your for your healthcare. I mean, I pay around what is it, a hundred euros a month for full healthcare co- coverage, and that's it. Uh, and then some of my colleagues were suddenly paying, what was it, like $2,000 a month for a family or something like that? Oh, at least. I can't really remember, but a lot of money. And uh, if you mention these numbers in, in Holland, people are shocked. They can't believe it. They said, no, you mean for a year? No, 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 it's for a month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. So, um, so let, me get, let me ask you a question, though, Ricker. How many hours a week do you work personally? Well, it depends on how you define work. Well, Either okay. zero or ninety. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Me too. Yeah. So here's the here's the problem, and I, I I think it's a fascinating problem. I don't think there's an answer to it. So let me stipulate that the neoliberal ideology, right, mm-hmm. in all its glorious splendor, the idea that the only thing that matters is money, the only organizing principle in human society should be competition, that price equals value, that all of this nonsense, it all needs to go, right? It's all bullshit. It's corrosive. We got to get by it. And yet, you know, for my own part, uh, like you, uh, I either work zero or 90%. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I certainly I make enough money sitting on my ass. Uh, I earn, you know, in a couple hours what most Americans earn in a year, but I work obsessively. I, and you know, like I can't stop myself and all of my wealthy friends do the same, you know, more mm-hmm. or less, right? People are ambitious. They love what they do. They find meaning and challenge in the work. 
you know, I rotated from a career largely in, in, you know, being an entrepreneur uh, to now being a social entrepreneur. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, like I'm obsessive about it and I, it, the idea of ratcheting it down to 15 hours a week, uh, like, I'm not sure I could do that. So <laughs> how do we given, and I think that, you know, me and Zach and you and our, uh, energy requires mm -hmm. an outlet, you know? So what, yeah. it, what, how do we, how do we square these things? You know, I think that Keynes vision was that at some point in the future, we would arrive at a society where everyone could basically do what you and I are able to do, right? Just to follow our intrinsic motivation and try to contribute in, in, uh, to projects that we care about. And that, you know, only 15 hours a week would be paid work just to pay the bills, basically. Um, so I guess that's, that's what we got to do. We got to properly define what we mean when we say work. And in, in my utopian society, work and play would become the same thing, right? Or we would have removed the word work from the dictionary. I think that's, that's what we're talking about here. And then, then it becomes a bit meaningless to say, oh, are you working 60 or 70 hours a week or, right. or whatever? The most important thing is, is when you work, do you care about your work? Do you think you contribute in any way? And this is why this whole concept of socially meaningless jobs has become uh, is so, is so fascinating to me. So I, I both agree and disagree with this frame. So one of the things that I have a big problem with is the idea of work, which is not socially valuable. I find that to be a, that, that, that view is highly elitist because it, so for sure in a society, in a commercial society that devalues people by paying them so little that they can't lead dignified lives, you have debased them and exploited them and uh, devalued them, I think, in really corrosive ways. But uh, in, an, in a sufficiently inclusive society where every job is treated with uh, respect and every worker is treated with dignity, people can imbue lots of activities in life with mm -hmm. meaning and importance. And I, I agree, but, but, but sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I meant it the other way around, actually. Yeah. So when I talk about socially meaningless jobs, I'm talking about people with beautiful LinkedIn profiles, you know, who went to the best universities and, and have excellent salaries and working in consultancy or marketing or banking, but still at the end of the day have this feeling that they don't contribute anything. Uh, and it's not me saying it, it's people themselves saying it yeah. about their own jobs. This is what I, the response I got so often. Yeah. Uh, also from readers from my book who said, you know what, I don't have a meaningless job, but my job is part-time meaningless. You know, what I do is I earn a lot uh, of money saying as, a, as in some consultancy firm that I don't care about, but then I use all that money and I'm, I'm participating in this philanthropic project or whatever. Right. So that's what I mean. Uh, it's, it's, it's so often it seems that we live in an economy that is upside down, right? Where the people who earn the most contribute the least and the per people who yeah, earn the least contribute the most. Yeah. But let me, let me, let me just challenge your thinking on that because this has a mm -hmm. lot to do. I think that that has less to do with the, the nature of the job itself and more to do with the construction of our markets. That is to say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's so many people who work for companies that are just objectively harming, harming the world, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why the work is so meaningless is because you go to work every day engaged 
in a, in an effort which is largely corrosive to the public good. It's not that lawyering in and of itself is uh, meaningless or harmful, but it certainly is if you're defending giant insurance companies from you know, nasty people uh, with uh, health problems, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's the thing I think that makes work meaningless to people is they just feel like, well, I'm like, I'm working super hard, but not bringing any value into people's lives other than the people of the shareholders who own my company. Exactly. I guess the the neoliberal framework or the framework of of the third way, you know, of the social democrats in in, in that took over in the yeah. UK, you know, Tony Blair, etc. I guess their framework was that the only thing that government should do, or one of the most important things that government should do, is to provide people with skills, right? So education, education, yeah. education. Right. And if you do that, that that's enough. What they forgot is that what really matters is what people do with their skills. Yes. Right. So Correct. you can be a great lawyer and waste those skills. Right. You can be a great d uh, developer or, or a great, you know, banker or whatever and, and waste those skills. Yes. I think that's one of the great, great tragedies of our time is that we're wasting so much talent. Yes. There are so many people who are way too smart to work on Wall Street. They are way too smart right. to work in Silicon Valley. Yes. In this era of climate change, they need to be engineers yes. or something like that, right? right? They need to be working on, on real solution to the greatest challenge of, of, of humanity that we're, you know, that we're facing right now. And, and, and they're developing these algorithms to let us click on ads. I know. Ads, like or, it's... Or, and they're, they're, they're developing these terrible, destructive financial products. So it's, it's not just about the skills. It's about... What do you actually do with Correct. those skills? Okay. I and I agree with you. It's all about yeah. market design. Yeah. We could easily design the market in a different way that it would become more profitable to be an engineer working on climate change. That's right. right? Rather than rather than monetizing humanity's deepest vulnerabilities at Facebook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, uh, Rooker, you've got one final pillar of your book, which is this idea of open borders. And I want to make sure we mm -hmm. get, get to that before we close. Uh, could you mm -hmm. Could you unpack it for us a little bit? Sure. Well, this is definitely the most radical idea of my book, right? I mean, as I said, basic income has almost become mainstream right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but opening borders, well, that's a, that's a different story, I guess. As a historian, what I always like to do is to zoom out and to ask a very simple question. What will the historians of the future think of us? Right. So, so we can look back on, say, the Middle Ages and say, oh, these were terrible people. These were barbarians, right? They had torture, they had witch hunts and all those that kind of stuff. And we're so civilized these days. Um, but then probably the historians, you know, will look back on us and think maybe in the same way about right. us. And, and then the question is, what are the things we do right now that are absolutely barbarian, right? That, you know, that our, our grandchildren or, or people after them will look at with disgust. Um, and I think that the... the one of one of the obvious things here is borders, right? We have a, a system of international borders that is basically apartheid on a global scale. 60% of your income is dependent on the simple fact, you know, where you were born, if you were lucky or not. Um, and most of the arguments we have against immigration, against opening those borders, are really, really bad. Um, so we think that, oh, these immigrants come and steal our jobs, or they drive wages down, or they destroy social cohesion, or they never go back, right? You've got all these arguments, and I go over them in the book, and I try mm -hmm. to show that actually most of them, you know, are, are simply not true. 
Um, now I know that's not a very popular thing, but I uh, I thought it was important to um, yeah to, to and, write one of the final chapters. As you point out, some of us for, for for some of us the world does have open borders. Very true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for the rich. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My guess is you met quite a few of them at Davos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they yeah. had no trouble <laughs> crossing borders. Yeah. Another private jets flying in. Professor David Attenborough speak about climate change. Yeah. <laughs> no, and and I mean it's also for goods and and and, and some services yeah. also, right? Uh, I mean right. iPhones can go around the globe. Bananas can go around the globe. But people it's, can't. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the most valuable that's right uh, factor of production yeah we don't have free trade we you know goods can goods can move money can move but not people <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is the, the interesting problem. thing here is again from a historical perspective is that borders are a quite recent invention just as the nation state so the nation state is a is an invention of the 19th century uh, right so germans and italians and french people they really had to be made they didn't exist they were instructed, you know, in, in systems of schools where they learned how to be French and they learned how to be German. Uh, and the same is true for borders. It's an inve invention of, of the early 20th century, especially after the First World War. Uh, before that, there were some countries that issued passports like the Ottoman Empire and Russia, but they were seen as backwards countries. Um, and uh, there, there are some... You know, just so so fascinating things about the system we have right now, the perversity of it. So, so to give one example, uh, the U.S.-Mexican uh, border, this whole idea of building a wall, right? It's the, the irony is so great because if you look at the data, what you see is that in the 60s, you already had quite a, quite a lot, a few Mexican immigrants. Uh, going to the U.S. To, to work there for a bit. But most of them went back. Around 85% went back after a couple of years. You know, they earned their money. They missed their family. They wanted to go back. Then the U.S. started militarizing the border in the 70s and the 80s. And it became much more difficult to go to make the journey. So when you had made the journey, you were like, oh, I don't want to do this ever again. So people stayed. And in the 80s and the 90s, only 15% of all those immigrants went back. So the result of building walls was that you get way more illegal immigrants, you know, millions, millions more illegal immigrants because of walls. Now, just imagine what will happen if, if, that, if that wall will really ever get built. The problem will only get worse, right? You don't actually solve it here. And that, that, that's just one of those examples is that we got so many, so many things just totally wrong about immigration. Hmm. Hey, Rucker, we've only got a couple moments left. I, I thought I would ask, hmm. are there policies... What's next? Yeah, or concepts that yeah. you're thinking about now. The next now that book. Yeah, what's the next utopia? Okay, so every discussion I had around basic income or a shorter work week or relying on people's intrinsic motivation, in the end, I was always talking about human nature with people. And so many people would say to me, right, Rutger, I love your ideas, but you know, human beings are just not like that. Right. We are just in the end, we're just selfish and, and civilization is only a thin layer. And as soon as something happens, a, a war or a natural disaster, you know, we'll be beast again. Animals. That's what we are. So I love all your ideas, but it's, it's never really going to happen. Uh, so at that point, I realized that my next book uh, would have to be a much more ambitious book, basically about human nature, where I would have to debunk this whole pessimistic, cynical view of what human beings are like. And to go over all the new exciting evidence we have from psychology, yeah. 
and from sociology and from from economics even and from history that shows that actually well most people are pretty nice yeah of you know, course we are fundamentally caring social species so that's what the next book is going to be out, be about it's it's going to be published in dutch in september and in english next year i love it well i'm giving a ted talk on that in uh july so oh, that's <laughs> we're, we're highly aligned uh, uh that's so great so tell us why do you do this work what did your mom and dad do to you to hmm. make you <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great question. You know, my, my mom is a teacher and my father is a, is a Protestant minister. So um, Interesting. I guess uh, I'm, I'm following, um, following in their footsteps. <sighs> Lives of service. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, the basic lesson of history for me is that things can be different. There's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. It can all change. So that makes me, you know, that makes history such a subversive, such a radical science to me. Uh, I, I, if, you, if you tell people a theoretical story or make a theoretical argument about how basic income could work or, or how we could shorten the work week, people are a bit like, hmm, skeptical, you know, is that ever going to happen? But then if you tell them a, a real story about real people, uh, you know, or real experiments that happened in the past where this actually worked. You tell them that actually the U.S. in the 1970s almost implemented a guaranteed basic yeah. income on yeah. Richard Nixon. They're <laughs> like, what? What happened there? Right. So so history really helps you to open up your mind and to see new possibilities. And that's what I'm trying to to help people do in, with my work. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. We look forward to your next book. Yeah, <laughs> can't wait to see it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, so that was a really fascinating conversation uh, with Rutger Bregman. Uh, obviously, a very smart guy. Yeah. Uh, Wonderkin <laughs> yeah. Uh, was pretty accurate. Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you, I've obviously listened to all the podcasts we've done and done some incredible interviews, but that was one of the yeah, One he's very he's very ones. sharp, very smart, and has thought in a very nuanced way about a lot of these really important issues. Um, you know, and as I reflect on these really ambitious ideas, you know, like MMT, for instance, from my own perspective, what we know to be certain is that a lot of the existing ideas are wrong and not working, and we need to be open to the possibility of new ones. Certainly, his idea about a 15-hour work week and universal basic income and tearing down the borders. These are these are very ambitious ideas. And particularly, as we were talking about, from the American perspective, where we can't even get big, big profitable companies to pay their workers enough to get by without food stamps, uh, they seem, well, he says utopian. Utopian, yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about it is often utopians, by their very nature, are very dogmatic. Um, but he's not at all. I found yeah. him to just be incredibly engaging and thoughtful and was willing to just to roll through these ideas with us and our challenges with it. It was cool. It was yeah. Really, really cool. You know, I think being a historian in particular um, makes you a more, you know, a more powerful and useful analyzer of social constructs. I mean, one of the problems with economics is that it's so insular and um, assumes, it, it, so, so much of it assumes um, that the existing structures can't change right. and and it, literally ahistorical. Like yeah, it's, it, right. It's like one <laughs> of its, its uh, values nature. that it claims. Yeah. <laughs> it's ahistorical. <laughs> yeah. So doesn't matter what happened. Yeah. But you know, zooming out and thinking about the world historically is a, is a great um, is a great perspective. Uh, uh, you know, there's this Oscar Wilde 
quote, progress is the realization of utopias. And, I, you know, I think that's largely true, as he pointed out. Certainly from the point of view of uh, people from 300 years ago, we, we live in a utopia today. And from the point of view of somebody 300 years hence, hopefully if human beings survive, we'll have made the same kind of progress. Yeah. Great. That was awesome. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, you should go out and get his book. Hey, so I'm really excited that in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to directly address the decline of worker power uh, with two of my favorite people, the labor leader, David Rolfe, and the economist, Larry Michelle. Should be really interesting. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fadley. See you next week.